0: Good morning. Eric's uh, prayed already uh, for our time together this morning, and so uh, we're going to move right into the the text this morning. The reading was from John, but the text continues in Ezekiel chapters 15 and 16, and the text from John was read because these are texts about fruit, and we want to be talking this morning about what it means to be fruitful as followers of Christ, and I'll begin with this observation that we live in a culture that increasingly sees monogamy as a dying value. Increasingly, our culture sees monogamy as a dying value. Megan Baker has written a book entitled Rewriting the Rules, about the movement from monogamy to polyamory, and I quote from her when she says, Uh, Monogamy cannot bear the weight of its own expectations. It's inevitable that it will die. Chris Ryan wrote Sex at Dawn, in which he says this, you didn't fail monogamy, monogamy failed you. It's an unsustainable model, never designed for humans or any mammals. There's another book entitled The Polyamorists Next Door, Inside Multiple Partner Relationships and Families, Uh, a book that is doing very well on uh, the bestseller list and that kind of thing. There are numerous TED Talks about the death of monogamy and Laura Kipnis uh, wrote an essay entitled Against Love and the essence of her essay by one reviewer is this and I quote directly from the reviewer who says here's what Laura believes screw everyone and anyone you want anytime whenever necessary just don't put any hope in love are you depressed yet Like, this is a culture in which we find ourselves. One sociologist says uh, monogamy is on the decline because the church is on the decline. And our failure to uphold the cultural value of monogamy and the scriptural value of monogamy is a problem. Now, let me tell you why this matters this morning, because this is actually not a sermon about marriage. There's a sermon about discipleship, but marriage is the premier picture of discipleship in the scriptures. And the way that we view marriage then will affect our spiritual life. And and, and so the marriage picture explains, particularly in Ezekiel chapter 16, why Israel was judged. So this morning, we'll look at three elements regarding this judgment on the nation of Israel, the vision that God has for discipleship, the departure from that vision, the promise of restoration. And when we look at the vision beginning there, God's vision for all of the room is this, that we would bear fruit, but that that fruit would be born out of intimacy. And so there's two metaphors articulated in Ezekiel. In chapter 15, there's the the metaphor of a vine that isn't bearing fruit, And the conclusion of chapter 15 is this. Hey, look, uh, the wood that makes up a vine in a grape vineyard, that wood is good for nothing other than a conduit to to, uh, produce fruit. In other words, you don't use grape wood as firewood. You don't use it to build furniture. You don't use it to, to, to make glue lamp beams. That, that wood has one purpose. It exists so that the vine can lead to the branch, can lead to fruit. And if there's no wine coming from that wood, that wood is burned. It's all about the fruit. Then you come to chapter 16, and it is not only the crux of the book of Ezekiel, but it's the most uh, graphically sexual articulation of kind of perversion that you find in the whole Bible. And we're not going to read it verse by verse this morning for many, many reasons. But it's a picture of a woman who was blessed by a man who then enters into a covenant of marriage with her and then she receives all these gifts from him and becomes exorbitantly beautiful and then uses her beauty to prostitute herself and sleep with many, 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 many other lovers. And it's this tragic story of infidelity. So let's look at the big picture here. Here's why these two metaphors are given to us. The big picture is this. You and I are invited as Christ followers to intimate fidelity with God. That's the way it works. In other words, what God has in mind for us is not a religious system or a moral code. What God has in mind for us is to be in a love relationship with God that's always been God's vision, And in a covenant love relationship, there's always, in a covenant love relationship, always a dance of giving and receiving, right? And so no matter how your marriage looks, there's giving and receiving. And as the weeks become months, become years, become decades, and now for me, as a guy who's, uh, I'll celebrate my 40th wedding anniversary on September 8th. Congratulations to me. That's really good. And yes, yes, go ahead. It's fine. But that 40-year thing is like, thousands upon thousands of acts of giving and receiving. That's the way it works. That's the only way it's sustained. You have to be willing to receive. If you're not willing to receive, then it won't work. You have to be willing to give. If you're not willing to give, it won't work. And so there's giving of time, affirmation, encouragement, gifts. Who in the room has had this experience? If you're married. If you're married in the room, who's had this experience? Uh, sometimes she's up and you're down and she lifts you up. Sometimes you're down and she's up and she lifts you up, and because of that, the intimacy is sustained. Who's had that experience of being the one lifted up in the room? Who's had the experience of being the one doing the lifting up? Congratulations, you're, you're, you're in a healthy marriage, probably, if that's happening, right? So, so that's, that's kind of the thing. And the clearest revelation in marriage of giving and receiving comes in the producing of children, of course. Because for children to come into existence, he must give his seed. He has to. Tim Keller uh, calls this, the pastor in New York, he calls this radical self-donation. He gives of the very essence of his life, but his giving results in nothing unless the woman is willing to receive what he's offering, right? So his giving, her receiving, the result, children. Children. Now, of course, caveat here, we're talking about a love relationship. I'm not talking about sexual assault or something like that, so don't miss the point for the exceptions. But in a love relationship, he gives, she receives, and the result when everything is right, the result when everything is right, is that new life is created. That's the whole point. So this is a picture offered to us by God of our intended life with Christ. In Ephesians 5, Jesus is called the groom, the husband, he lays his life down for his bride, and we who claim to know, love, and follow Christ are called, in Ephesians 5, we're the bride of Christ, right? And I'm going to tell you, this is not just a poetic metaphor, this is reality. When you come to Revelation, the end of the book of Revelation, there's a a marriage feast uh, for the groom, the lamb, and the bride, the church, that's us. And so we are united with Christ in a marriage. And this is just beautiful, profound reality that tells us then that we as the bride are invited to this posture of ongoing receiving of life from Christ by virtue of our intimate relationship with Jesus. And what's more, uh, we're promised that the result of that intimacy will be that as we continue to receive from Christ, having been filled with the seed that is Christ's life, we will bear much fruit. That's the way it works. So, let me make you some critical observations here. First observation, that means that all of us in the room are married. Whether you're married or not, you're married. And uh, so if you're single here this morning, I'm going to say something encouraging to you. Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, hey, if you're single, the beauty that you have is undistracted, unhindered devotion to the eternal groom who is Christ. So if you're single, whether you're single now or single for the rest of your life, when you're single, that's an opportunity. Leverage that opportunity and live with that undistracted devotion, develop that relationship of intimacy with Christ. And... Uh, if you're married in this realm, understand as well, don't let your human marriage ever diminish this eternal relationship, your marriage to Christ. Rather, learn from your human marriage what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It's hugely, hugely significant. And then here's the next thing, the second thing that to, to see here in this section, under, under this kind of posture here of vision. If we're called to animacy, hear me, in order to bear fruit, Christ's fruit... We have to continually receive Christ's seed. We have to, because we're the bride. And so I want to reject here at the outset this morning the notion that Christian life was a transaction then and a moral code now. It would say, I came to Jesus one day, I received Jesus as my personal Savior, whatever language you want to use. Then I was baptized, and now, you know, I'm sweating out for Jesus. I'm working hard to get Jesus' work done here on the earth. no. Like, when, when you, whatever you did, receive Christ, if you're in relation with Christ, what you did is you entered into, hear me, an ongoing covenant of marriage. So you don't receive Jesus once any more than in marriage you're, you receive once. I hope not, anyway, right? Ongoing receptivity, so you're receiving again and again and again the seed that is Christ's life in order that you now, being the recipient of that seed, might bear fruit. That's John 15. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Why? Because without my seed, the fruit you bear will not be the life for which you're created. So that's why here at Bethany, inhaling habits like... Meditation, solitude, Bible reading, receiving from God in creation, receiving from God in community. That's why this posture of continually receiving is so very important. Don't just come and leave today. Receive Christ from fellowship. Go have coffee afterwards and receive because Christ is here. You're the body of Christ. Receive Christ from one another. Then go out and walk around Green Lake today and receive Christ from creation. Then later, read Ezekiel and receive Christ from the text. And then receive Christ as you interpret the trials of your life. And receive Christ for the gifts that God gives you uh, on this day of good food or good fellowship or good conversation. Continue, continue, continue. Receive, receive, receive. Because if you receive, you abide. And if you abide, you bear fruit. And if you bear fruit, you're living the life for which God created you. So you need a pot of receiving. That's the first thing. Second thing. Or, wait, that's, that is the second thing, right? In my notes, anyway. First thing, we're all married. Second thing, in order to bear fruit, receive. Third thing, if we're obsessed with receiving, then we can be at rest because we know fruit will happen. Like, you were never told to go bear fruit. You were told to receive. And the promise then, the byproduct of receiving, is bearing fruit. Many, many people are worried that they're not making a significant impact in the world, that they're not living a quote-unquote meaningful life, that they're not living the life for which they're created. And then uh, people set out on a journey in a kind of a boutique buffet fashion to build a meaningful life. And we build it, you know, out of this combination of experiences and impact and philanthropy and spirituality. We're trying to kind of custom build a meaningful life. And I'm just going to say to you as your friend and pastor this morning, don't do that. Because that will never be the meaningful life for which you're created. It'll actually be frustrating… And you would be comparing yourself with others and saying, how come their life is more meaningful than mine? Get over it. Get, get over all of that. Sweep that aside and become obsessed with as the bride receiving the seed that is Christ's life and then rest in knowing you will bear much fruit. I teach at these various Bible schools around the world and my friend Charlie Fordham up in Canada one time said in a staff meeting at the Bible school... A phrase that I will never forget, and it so has helped me here at Bethany Community Church. He said, hey, listen, the nature of Christ's life is reproductive, so if we're continuing to receive Christ's life, we should expect fruit. Wow, liberating, right? Ever since then, since I heard that, When as the leader here at Bethany, when I get confused, overwhelmed, discouraged, I remember those words and I'm reminded that my active verb is not to bear fruit. My active verb is to continue over and over and over again to receive Christ through text, through fellowship, through creation, always receiving. And if I receive, fruit will happen. The nature of the fruit, the scope of the fruit, big or small, the timing of the fruit today, nine months from now, nine years from now, God's prerogative. But my responsibility, let nothing stand between me and receiving continually Christ. John 15, 8, Jesus said it, your calling, the life for which you are created, bear much fruit, so prove yourselves to be my disciples, but the way you bear fruit is abiding. So if you abide, you live in intimacy with Jesus, you receive, if you receive, fruit happens. Good news. Fantastic news, actually. None of us in the room are called to a performance religion. We're not even called to make an impact. We're not called to develop a perfect doctrinal statement and defend it. We're not even called to live a perfect life. All we're called to do is live in this humble posture of receiving. Do justice, love mercy. What? Walk humbly with God. Receive, receive, receive. As you're receiving, fruit happens. That's it. So, walk with God and good things will happen. Because you're receiving the seed from the life force of the universe, it is Christ. And then you will bear, through you will come, you know, beauty, hope, justice, hospitality. What could possibly go wrong? Well, everything, actually. Which brings us to the second point here, the second element in this prophetic word is, though you're called to covenant intimacy, there's been a departure. That's, that's Israel's problem in Ezekiel uh, 16. There's been a departure. The covenant has been broken, and as a result, people are reaping what's sown. So the complaint is explicit in Ezekiel 16. It's that God entered into a covenant relationship with God's people, and though they were in a covenant relationship, they broke the relationship, right? Monogamy's dead. (laughs) Thanks, God. Thanks for the gifts. Thanks for the forgiveness. Thanks for the cross thanks for the beauty, thanks that I live here, thanks for the clean water, thanks for the great education, thanks for the upward mobility, Th- thanks, thanks for the Bible, thanks for everything. Now I'm going to go take that and I'm going I'm, I'm to live a life of whatever. Pleasure, political activism, upward mobility, meaning, marriage, whatever is my idol. Yeah, I still love you, God, but I have something going on the side. That's Ezekiel 16. And Ezekiel 16, it's incredibly explicit. Not only do you have something going on the side, you have many other lovers. That's what God says. Oh, you still love God, but it's God plus. Doesn't work. Because here's the deal. When God uses covenant language with God's people, that God is calling us to reciprocate with what? Covenant fidelity. That's, we're created for covenant fidelity. Exodus 20, verse 3. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. Like you're called to this unrestricted pipeline of intimacy with Jesus so that you're continually receiving. What were Jesus' words when he was tempted by the devil? Hey, there's only one to worship God. What did Paul say? Paul's articulation of discipleship uh, in marriage, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Look, you're married. So be faithful to your spouse. Monogamy isn't dead. Monogamy is God's pathway to fruit and meaning. And of course, over all this is the basic life of faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6, just before Israel goes in to take the land so that they might become the light and hope that the world needs, just before that, what does God say? This is my command. You shall love the Lord your God. What? With all your heart, all your soul, all your strength unrestricted devotion to me, but you blew it. So under this rubric of departure, let me make three observations. The first observation is this. Listen, we may be unfaithful, God will always be faithful. God will always be faithful. God will never break the covenant. Habakkuk chapter 2 says, one of my favorite verses, the just shall live by God's faithfulness. That's really good news. Jesus said it this way, I will never leave you or forsake you. Then Paul said it this way, though we are faithless, God remains faithful. So I want to give you a word of confidence here this morning. Look, if you're in Christ, you're married, and hear me, your husband is never debating whether to leave you, ever. That's, really, that's actually really, really good news. And this, by the way, anecdotally, because this isn't a sermon on the ethics of marriage, but anecdotally, this is why there are those who believe that there is no cause ever for divorce. No co- why? Because would God ever divorce you? No. Have you're made in God's image, then you shouldn't divorce either. Now, I, I, again, just sweep that away for a second because it's not the point this morning. But the point this morning is this. I want you to have the supreme confidence that no matter what is your dysfunction, your anxiety, your failure, your shame, your fear, your complacency, your boredom, your self-loathing, no matter what it is that's bothering you, God's love is infinite, irrevocably for you. God will never leave you. God remains faithful. That's in this text. The second observation then is that you, in this covenant relationship, are called to love God faithfully, and while that is the, kind of the one true thing that constitutes the life of faith, just love God. It's the one true thing. This is also the thing that is most easily jettisoned from the faith life. Like, it's the one thing we're supposed to do, and we fail to do it. How do I know that? Well, you go to Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and when God has kind of given an overview of church history through letters to seven churches... The the one of the first churches, one of the first ones of Revelation chapter two. God is to the church in Ephesus, a very religious group of people by most standards, and this is what he says. I'm now quoting Revelation 2. Here's God. God says to the church, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You don't tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. You patiently suffered for me without quitting, yet I have this one thing against you. Though you do the right things, say the right things, show up, sing, worship, you have lost your first love. This is crazy. So, like, you still love God, but if you, if you really are honest and you ask, them what gives my life meaning and security? Where do I look for direction? Where do I look for hope? It might be God, but here's the problem. It's God plus. It's God plus upward mobility. It's God plus sexual autonomy. It's God plus self-medicating your own pain with alcohol or drugs or exercise. It's, it's God plus, still religious, still outwardly per- performing, but actually not fruitful anymore. And the problem is that you're not zealous enough. The problem is your heart has drifted away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, pure intimacy with Jesus. And then what God is doing here with Ezekiel or through Ezekiel to, to Israel, he's trying to show them, hey, if you're doubting that you have this problem, you need to, be, you need to look at the presenting fruit of your life. Like, are, are you displaying what you're made to display? And so God says, uh, through Ezekiel, and it's, re- it's a powerful prophetic word, God says to Israel, listen, you're worse than Sodom, Ezekiel 16.48. Now, if we did a thing here this morning, a kind of a word association... I go, I say Sodom and Gomorrah, you say what? 80 out of 100 at least are going to say, oh, that's sexual sin, man. In fact, many would say, oh, that's homosexuality. Well, A, it wasn't homosexuality at all because uh, these, these uh, guys want to sleep with angels who are sexless. B, Isaiah 1649, listen to this. This is the guilt of Sodom. And then God doesn't even name sexual sin. Now, there's sexual sin. Don't mishear me. But that's that's what God names. What does God name? This is the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, greatest nation on earth, excess food. We throw away 30% of our food in America. Prosperous ease, more free time than we know what to do with. But did not help the poor and needy. Think you're the greatest nation on earth, Tons of food, tons of free time, and you don't help the poor. No compassion. That's the presenting problem. And he goes on, when he names these sins, arrogance, abundant food, careless need, what God is trying to say is this, wake up! Because if you know me, the fruit of knowing me is generosity and service and helping the poor and crossing social divides. Remember, what does is, what is loving God look like? Micah 6.8, do justice, love mercy. That's what happens when you walk with God. So God is trying to show Israel here, hey, you say you love God because you show up in the temple. No, you love God, but you have lovers on the side. And, and, and the fruit of having lovers on the side is your heart is growing cold toward the most desperate among you. And now, kind of the third observation here regarding this departure is the bad fruit comes from having the wrong lovers. In other words, instead of receiving the seed of Christ, when someone falls into idolatry, it's infidelity. They're sleeping with other lovers. They're receiving the seed of other lovers. And when that happens, the fruit that comes from that other lover is not God's fruit. So when God says, I'm a jealous God, here's the deal. God is not this kind of petty spouse who's like, I saw you at the bar with someone. That's not the point. When God says, I'm a jealous God, here's why. (laughs) It's because God so desperately wants you to live the life for which you're created. And the life which you create is a life of bearing nothing less than the fruit of the resurrected Jesus. That's the life you're made for. And the only way that you can live that life is to receive God's seed and to forsake receiving other seed. So the complaint isn't that God's people don't love God; it's that they they're married to God and have over time taken lots of other lovers too. Christ plus. So you know, if we go back now to the human picture of marriage, and we think about infidelity, we, we're going to say infidelity happens sometimes in relationships when one party gets afraid in some way being stuck, and and then they and then they have other lovers even without leaving, right? And so if you if we take that now that picture, and we think about what are some fears in my life that might cause me to have other lovers? I go, man, th- th- people in their 20s and 30s particularly, there's a fear of boredom. and we So, so there's this kind of idol of adventure, in a sense. Uh, David Brooks, in his new book, The Two Mountains, he calls the idol of adventure, uh, those pursuers, he calls them the aesthetics. In other words, these are people who are like, we just we kind of curate a bunch of experiences. Hey, let's go to Nepal, let's go build a school here, let's go there, let's go work downtown, let's cross a social divide, let's let's go paragliding let's open a thing some coffee shop or something let's, let's do and do let's just collect experiences and, and then the complaint is this yeah we collect experiences but, but uh, we got a thousand experiences and we don't understand what it even mean and we're not connected to anybody because we're just going from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing rootless lonely anxious afraid that somebody on social media has more experiences than we do feeling inadequate to bad idol born out of boredom fear of boredom but maybe you're not afraid of boredom, maybe you're afraid of poverty and not fitting into the cultural mold. And then you fall into the idol in America of workaholism. And you know how to get connected and you know how to perform. But you're exhausted. And again, you wonder about meaning. You climb to the top of your mountain and you go, I have everything that I went after and I'm still not happy. And I don't know my kids and I'm lonely. And I have idols of greed Maybe there's fear of pain, and in my fear of pain, because life is painful, I turn to the idol of self-medication, whether that self-medication is food, or unhealthy sexual indulgence, or entertainment, or alcohol, or drugs, or even exercise, or ice cream, whatever it is, I'm like this, life is too painful, and rather than turning to Jesus and receiving comfort from the Good Shepherd, we self-medicate, and then that self-medication becomes addiction, and we're unhappy. God is saying, your idols are destroying you. Don't let, don't do it. It's not Christ plus. It's Christ. Because every idol, watch this, every idol bears fruit. And it's not pretty. And again, it's not that anyone is giving God the finger and walking away. It's that we're saying, yeah, I love God. God. It's just that God is not quite enough for me. Monogamy's dead. So I love God plus upward mobility. God plus individualism. God plus nationalism. God plus financial security. God plus sexual autonomy. God plus entertainment. God plus recreation. God plus health. No. In the end the good news is we can return. And uh, we know that we can return because of the prevailing nature of covenant love. God's always there. And in verses 53 to 63, God says, you will return eventually. How many you have seen the movie Forrest Gump in here? You know the movie? Most of you have seen it. If you haven't, a little bit of an older movie, uh, Tom Hanks and whoever she is. Don't know her name. Uh, it's Jenny and, and Forrest in the movie. And, and, uh, and Forrest is covenant love, man. He, he loves her. You know it, right? He loves her. And, and from the very beginning, when they were on the bus and she let him sit by her, he loves her. But then as she grows up, She doesn't love him anymore. and I mean, she has a lot of lovers. A lot of lovers. One time she's on stage, you know, at a strip thing, and he feels like she's being taken advantage of. He runs in and he picks her up and carries her off the stage. And she goes, what are you doing, Forrest? Leave me alone. But he loves her. And then then, uh, a guy is verbally abusing her. And Forrest goes up, remember? And he punches the guy. And then she gets on a bus with that guy. I mean, it's so poignant. (laughs) And then she says to him, you gotta stop chasing me, Forrest. I'm on my own, and she's gone. And then, you know the story, most of you do more lovers, leading to more emptiness, leading to more loneliness, leading to more frustration. And eventually, she returns to him. And uh, what does she say? She says, hey, Forrest, will you marry me? Sorry to spoil the movie for you if you haven't seen it. (laughs) Will you marry me? What does he say? Do you remember what he says? Of course I'll marry you. I've always loved you. I find that really profound. I'll always love you. I know you've got dozens of lovers. I know it. Doesn't change my love for you a shred. I'll always love you. Why is this a big deal? Man, it's a big deal. Because in the book of Hosea, this is God's plea. Hosea marries a prostitute and she sleeps around, and then he, God says, Go get her and bring her back in. Go get her, bring her back in, bring her back in. And then here's the invitation from Hosea to Israel Listen, I, God, am infinitely, irrevocably for you. I love you. Just return to me. How do I return to you? Just keep naming your idols. That's how. Like, name them, set them aside, I'm done. I'm done with the idol of upward mobility. I'm done with the idol of financial security. I'm done with the idol of sexual autonomy. I'm done with the idol of of greed. I'm done with the idol of fear. I'm done with the idol of individualism. I make my own reality. I'm done with the idol of nationalism. I'm done. I want to love like God and God alone. That's what I want to do. So, you know, I'm preparing for this, and I'm going through uh, Googling books on polyamory and monogamy is dead and I'm reading all these depressing quotes and I'm listening to Pan- Pandora at the same time and uh, what comes on Pandora right in the midst of my studies <laughs> Mark Cohn and this beautiful song True Companion you know, maybe you don't know the song we'll play it tonight during communion we have to Because as I'm reading all this depressing stuff, this is literally what I'm hearing. This guy's singing to his bride-to-be. Don't you dare and try and walk away. I've got my heart set on our wedding day. I have a vision of a girl in white. I've made my decision, it's you. And I'm gonna love you. And when you leave, I'm gonna love you again. And I'll love you again and again and again and again. Just return to me. So that's what we do today. I'm going to invite you to really take a moment and allow God to speak to you about anything in your life that's an idol, anything at all, something that's between you and God. Oh, I don't doubt that you love God. Maybe you don't, but I don't, I don't doubt it this morning. It's not the big risk. The big risk for most in the room isn't that we don't love God. It's that we love God and we have something on the side. And I want you to name that idol, or if there's something that's at risk of becoming an idol, I want you to name that. And then we're just physically going to return to him this morning by coming up here. We did this in the first service, and people uh, have named their idols and dropped them up here. I'm going to ask you to physically do that this morning, and here's why. Because I'll pray over our congregation this evening. I'm going to read all these, and then I'm going to light a little fire in my yard and burn all these things and pray that we would be a community characterized by unrestricted, passionate devotion to our one true love, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So take a moment, name your idol, bring it up here. Let's worship together.